This is episode 285 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show and contribute directly to programming when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to go even deeper into the history of William Shakespeare, consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare gives you access to digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. It's a great way to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Jeffrey R. Wilson, the author of Richard III's Bodies from Medieval England to Modernity, Shakespeare and Disability History. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And this is what the anonymous narrative says that Drake took out of this ship a pilot to carry him into the harbour of Guadalupe and also a proper Negro wench called Maria, which was afterward gotten with child between the captain and his men pirates and set on a small island to take her adventure. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. During his voyage around the world in 1577 to 1580, Sir Francis Drake captained a ship named the Golden Hind. On this ship, there was a woman named Maria, whose plight we only know about because of a record kept by an anonymous sailor who mentions her in only one line of a manuscript currently housed at the British Museum in London. The line is very short, but the history it references is immense. The line reads, quote, Drake took a proper Negro winch called Maria, which was afterward gotten with child between the captain and his men pirates and set on a small island to take her adventure, end quote. Some historians believe that Shakespeare was inspired by this report to write the character Sycorax in his play The Tempest, since Sycorax is also an African woman abandoned by sailors on an island while heavily pregnant. Here today to share with us the history of Maria, her story, and how much we can learn about whether her plight overlaps that of Shakespeare's play is our guest and author of the book On Wilder Seas, which imagines what Maria's story might have been like based on the history we can know about her. Nikki Marmory is the author of On Wilder Seas, The Woman on the Golden Hind, a book that explores the story of Maria, who sailed as a slave on the ship with Sir Francis Drake. In a former life, Nikki Marmory worked as a financial journalist. She now writes fiction from a small village near Amersham in the UK, where she lives with her husband and three children. Hello, Nikki. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. What do we know about the sailor who wrote this line recording Maria's existence? Well, we know very little, in fact. This is a document that is believed to have been created after Drake returned home from his circumnavigation in 1580. And there was a lot of mystery surrounding Drake's return. He was summoned to uh, see Queen Elizabeth. 
he was required to keep shtum really about his trip. And the reason for that was because he'd been up to no good. He had been antagonizing the Spanish. And this was a very delicate area. And, you know, England and war were in this kind of Cold War situation. And Elizabeth needed to prevent any outbreak of hostility, any open hostility with Spain. And she certainly didn't want Spain to know that Drake had sailed really quite far north on the American coast, because that would have been very provocative to their empire there. So he was sworn to secrecy when he returned. He wasn't allowed to publish his account of his voyage. The sailors weren't allowed to talk about it. There was no publication, any account of the voyage for a really long time after he returned. But what we do have are these documents that appear to have been put together by someone in authority interviewing people who were on the voyage. And this particular um, narrative, which is called the anonymous narrative, we don't know who the sailor is. We do know it's someone who is definitely on the voyage because the details that this person has about the voyage are very, very specific. They correspond to other eyewitness accounts and they don't correspond to the published accounts, which we'll come to later, which have been altered slightly from the eyewitness accounts. So we do know that this person was definitely on board the ship. We know that it is someone who is very hostile to Drake because of the wording they they use. You know, I can read the the quote for you now to give you an idea of that. So this, um, this unknown person says, that when Drake attacked one of the many Spanish ships that he attacked off the coast of the um, western coast of Spanish America, this was near Guatemala, he took what he always did, took riches, he took food, he took supplies, he took a pilot because knowledge of that coast is was, was unknown to him. He needed to have local knowledge. And he took a woman uh, called Maria. And this is what the anonymous narrative says. That Drake took out of this ship a pilot to carry him into the harbour of Guadalco, and also a proper Negro wench called Maria, which was afterward gotten with child between the captain and his men pirates and set on a small island to take her adventure. So this description of Drake and his men as pirates is very telling because, of course, Drake didn't see himself like that at all. That's how the Spanish saw him um, and that's how he behaved. So it's very telling that this person describes him like that so we know that this person is hostile to drake and we can surmise you know that there were only 58 sailors who returned with drake from his voyage so we can imagine that this person is one of those people who has sort of harbored a a grudge against drake for the for the duration of this voyage which lasted three years and that's not that surprising because there were plenty of really terrible things that went on in this voyage you know, that's that's as far as we know. It's it's one of those sailors who returned. We don't know who. Richard Hacklett records a version of Drake's journey that survives today. And then Drake's nephew also records the journey in a publication called The World Encompassed, which was written in 1628. Is Maria's story or even her name mentioned at all in these accounts of Drake's voyage? Absolutely not. The version that was published by Hacklett in uh, 1589. So that's a full nine years after Drake returned, which is a really, really long time because you can imagine the sort of public appetite for information about this trip. It would have been, you know, someone returning from from traveling around the world in, in 1580. It's like someone returning from, from Mars today. It would have been absolutely incredible for people. And they they were very, very hungry for information about this, about this voyage. So the fact that this 
official account didn't come out for another nine years is 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 quite extraordinary. And that's the reason for that is that the Queen had to be very, very cautious about what information was published because of this very delicate situation with Spain. And, and Richard Hacklett himself, when he did publish this information, he was really in two minds about it. He had, uh, you know, he said himself that a lot of his friends had told him not to publish it because it was still quite delicate. And, you know, you sort of crossed the the wishes of the authorities, Elizabethan authorities, your your absolute peril. And in fact, when he did publish it, he published it in a kind of separate sort of um, collection of leaves that were sort of afterwards inserted into the into the published book. And so they were there in some edition, in some in, in some of the copies, but not in others. So it's very, very rare. So she is not mentioned at all in that version. In fact, when he comes to this moment where Drake attacks this Spanish ship and he takes the pilot and he has quite a detailed interaction with the captain of this ship and the, uh, and the aristocrat who who is described, he's described as, as Maria's uh, master. You know, when, when we come to those details, Hacklett's version describes absolutely everything except Maria. So that's very telling. The next sort of information that we have about Drake's voyage, which is is published in 1628 by his nephew, is an account of the voyage that was taken out of the notes of Francis Fletcher, who was the chaplain on board the Golden Hind. Um, He's a big character in my book. He kept the, the kind of ship's account of the voyage up until the point where he fell out with Drake. There was this absolutely huge sort of uh, rupture and it actually ended you know, he had accused, Francis Fletcher had accused uh, Drake of, uh, you know, some appalling behaviour. And at a point in the journey when they all thought they were going to die, they were sort of wrecked on a, a reef in the East Indies. They all thought they were dying. And at this point, Francis Fletcher very unwisely accused Drake of having brought God's wrath upon them all by his by his behaviour. And so that ended with Drake chaining him to the mainmast with a sign that said Francis Fletcher is biggest knave that ever lived. So that whole situation ended very badly for Francis Fletcher. So we know very little about him after the voyage returned. It was just his notes that were used to compile this version by Drake's nephew. And again, Maria is absolutely not mentioned in that at all. And in both of those versions, actually, there are significant details about the voyage that have been clearly altered. And particularly the details that were altered in both of those accounts was exactly where Drake had travelled, how far north on the American coast he had travelled, and where the location of his colony was, because Drake set up the first English colony anywhere in the Americas. Um, This is before Raleigh, and the location of it is still hotly contested today because Queen Elizabeth did not want the Spanish to know where he had been. So there's a lot of details that are missing from both of those accounts. Um, But for our purposes, you know, we're, we're interested in Maria. She is absolutely not mentioned at all. Well, if we can't turn to other accounts of Drake's voyage for corroborating evidence for Maria's existence and what her plight might have been like, I wonder if there's any archaeological discoveries. Have there been any artifacts uncovered since the 17th century that might provide corroborating evidence for Maria's existence? Well, this is this is also sort of a fascinating point, really, because there have been lots of hoaxes. There have been lots of claims about where Drake was. And in particular, the state of California has has made this claim to Drake's landing place. And then you have Drake's Bay near San Francisco and 
that is very much sort of seen as the official landing site, but it's very, very, very unlikely to be there. And all the evidence points to Drake's landing site being much further north. So we have sort of, there have been sort of instances of archaeological you know, discoveries, um, which turn out to be hoaxes. Um, and sometimes they appear to be deliberate hoaxes in order to establish a claim to Drake's landing place. And the whole sort of history of this it's actually an extraordinary conspiracy and an extraordinary read. And if, if people are interested in it, I would really suggest they read a book called Thunder Go North by Melissa Darby, because she goes into the machinations that were going on to sort of hide the true or the, the likely landing place of Drake, I should say, because it's not no one knows where it is. She thinks it's Oregon. In the research that I did for this book, I definitely think it's further north than California. And in my book, I have set it even further north than Oregon. I've set it at the sort of border, really, of, of Washington State and Canada. So there's a huge sort of fascinating history about this, about where they landed. So in short, the answer is we have absolutely no archaeological evidence of Maria or indeed of any of Drake's landing place or this colony, the first colony in the Americas. And fascinatingly, what Melissa Darby does in her book, actually, is that she looks at a sort of a range of other evidence to try and work out where this landing place is. And some of the best evidence we have is actually the records of the people that they encountered there, the, you know, the language they spoke, the food they ate, the, the clothes they wore, the particular way they constructed their houses and dwellings, um, because that is all very, very good evidence for exactly where it is. And none of those details, you know, we have a very detailed account of Drake's experiences in Nova, Nova Albion, um, which is the colony, and they do not correspond with California. So that is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I would I highly uh, recommend that people read this book if, if they're interested in that sort of particular aspect of the story. We've established that Drake was at least had a reputation longstanding among several people for participating in worthless behavior. But I wonder whether or not he was off the rails in taking a woman onto the ship. Was it standard practice for English ships to take women as prostitutes for the sailors? Absolutely not. I mean, it would have caused huge, huge problems. You have immense problems managing a ship anyway. You've got obviously hugely, hugely close quarters. There is no space at all. On the Golden Hind in particular, there's only one cabin. Drake is the only person who had his own cabin. Everyone else slept, you know, where they could find space. There were sort of several aristocrats, you know, gentlemen, adventurers on board. They had to sleep in the armory. The chaplain slept in the armory. The common sailors were all on the gun deck. So there is absolutely no space, um, no privacy. And it's a very very dangerous place for women. You know, these are men who will be away for three years. Their likelihood of returning is about your 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 expectation of, of surviving a journey like this was about 50%. So you've got a bunch of very rough men, some of them who haven't even chosen to be there. In fact, you know, when Drake set off in this voyage, it was so secret. No one knew where they were going. Um, most of the sailors thought they were going somewhere else entirely. They didn't know they were going across the Atlantic. They thought they were going to Alexandria or somewhere closer to home they didn't realize they would go into the new world they didn't realize they'd be gone for three years some of them had been uh, sort of forced into the voyage so you have a bunch of people who are in danger the whole time they are sex starved men they're young men because the average age of, of men on a voyage like this is very very young they're in their 20s you know and obviously they're much younger men and boys on board as well that is a 
hugely dangerous situation for a woman and also for young boys, because that is another aspect of this voyage that I explore in my book, that, you know, young boys who are on these voyages, you know, upwards of 10 years old, you know, away from their families, were hugely at risk of being raped. And there are plenty of accounts of, of horrific scenarios like that happening. In fact, some of those details of the book of the of the young boy, Thomas, who who has that experience, and that's the reason he has this huge sort of allyship with Maria in my book. Details of him saying, you know, the thing to do is you have to stitch yourself into your breeches, you have to tie a knot uh, around your around your breeches at night. Those details come from records of trials where uh, men are being uh, accused of raping other men and younger boys. So those are horrific details. So, you know, you can't underestimate the danger for a woman in a situation like this. The other thing, of course, is that there's this superstition that women are very dangerous on board a ship, that they bring bad luck. And that is absolutely something that sailors believed. They thought women women angered the sea. That's what they thought. So you had this sort of big superstition that would prevent you wanting to, to take a woman on board. And Drake had this rule, you know, no women on board for a reason, because it's not possible for everyone to take a woman on board because of the space. If you have a situation where the aristocrats or Drake himself had taken a mistress on board, that would have caused huge antagonism with the other sailors. And he was always sort of managing this very sort of tight rope of keeping everyone happy on board. There was a huge antagonism between the sailors and the aristocrats, which actually resulted in a in the death of one of the aristocrats on board, Thomas Doughty. So, you know, you have all of these tensions, which means that it is very, very unlikely that they would have wanted a woman on board, which is what makes it so fascinating. You know, why is she there? It's very dangerous. It's dangerous for them to take her. It's not really in Drake's interests, even if he found her, you know, if he, even if he was attracted to her and it was, the, you know, a sexual aspect. that is, is, And that's what's often been assumed about this situation, that she's there for that reason. But it causes more problems than it, it solves. So that is fascinating to me. And what is especially fascinating, fascinating is that you have, you know, Drake had several freed African men on board his ship. They were all free. Um, now, Drake absolutely took part in some horrific behaviour earlier in his career with regards to slavery and enslaving people. Um, he absolutely was involved in things like that early in his career. But by this point, by 1577, he appears to have sort of decided against that because every time he came into contact with enslaved Africans in the New World, he freed them. So this is fascinating because it kind of means that there's something else going on here. And that's what interested me. And that's what sort of sparked my interest in the book. In addition to it being a weird choice at all, it seems out of character even for Drake himself to have made made this choice. It, it, absolutely. It's out of character in almost every respect. You know, if it was an act of charity, that is absolutely out of character for him. If it was a desire to have a mistress on board, that's very out of character for him. It doesn't really fit into anything we know about Drake. And the fact, not only the fact that they, they took her, but the fact that she was on board for such a long time. She was there for nine months. So that suggests something going on that we don't really understand. And, you know, for a novelist that gives you, you know, I'm not his, I'm not a historian. I make no claims to saying this is what happened. I'm a novelist. But so that gives me room to imagine scenarios that might have happened. And, and, and that's what I've done 
in my book. But I should add, actually, that we do have uh, we do have more evidence of the Spanish ships. There is more evidence of women women uh, being on board. Again, it wasn't permitted; it wasn't allowed. But because of this, you know, the Spanish had this huge industry going, you know, with ships going from Seville to the Indies, back again, across to the Philippines, back to Mexico. They had this, you know, huge, huge, huge industry, the Indies fleets at the time. So, you know, that there's much more evidence on those ships that women uh, were sometimes on board. And in fact, they were called raindrops. They would sort of appear after the ship has left port. These women might emerge and they would have to be put on on left at port, you know, the next time they landed. But there was one incident that actually I borrowed from my book where there was an incident where there was one general in the um, Tierra Firma fleet who had a mistress on board. He was sailing sort of one way down the coast and then another captain took over from him and sailed up. And when that happened... His his mistress, who was a woman called Maria, by coincidence, sort of swapped lovers, you know, or or whatever you want to call that situation, because it's much more complicated than that. You know, she stayed on the ship. When the captain left and the new captain arrived, she then became his mistress. And that really was the source of something that happens in my book, where Maria is is sort of talking about something that happened in her past where she says that, you know, she was sort of, uh, you know, she changed places, you know, on the ship alongside the, you know, alongside the sails and the cooking pots and the furniture, you know, as if she's a piece of furniture along with the ship. And, you know, that's something I borrowed from a from a real life incident on, on board the Spanish ships. While the existing records of Maria suggest that she was abandoned on the island, perhaps from malice or neglect, Nikki discovered evidence of women in similar positions as Maria that suggest being put off on the island may have been orchestrated by Maria herself as a means of escape. Nikki, how would Maria have potentially used blasphemy as a means to get Francis Drake to discard her from the ship? That sort of plot point in the book which comes at a sort of a very sort of pivotal moment where Maria uses blasphemy to kind of distract Drake and sort of engineer that she stays on the island. So that is, you know, I'm not going to say for a moment that that's something that happened. That's that, that, that's something that I invented in the book. But the where it comes from is kind of two sources, really. The first was the evidence that I found while I was researching this book, the evidence for the really quite extraordinary ways that women in Maria's position who um, so women who might be enslaved or they might have freed themselves from slavery, but were still in a very sort of um, uh, subservient position in in Spanish uh, Mexico at this time. The ways in which they found they were able to exert their agency were really very surprising and unexpected to me. So, for example, under Spanish law, even if you were enslaved, you had a right to family life and that meant a spouse so if your spouse was sold away from you to be moved somewhere else you were able to sort of petition for that not to happen so to keep the family together so that is a very surprising development you see these um so we have plenty of records of you know illiterate women who are enslaved who are you know really at the bottom of the pile but who are using their knowledge of Spanish law to engineer situation in their favour. Uh, so I found lots of evidence like that. I found lots of evidence of women, again, women using sort of 
very detailed knowledge of Spanish law um, when you might not expect them to have that knowledge um, to their advantage. You know, there's lots of uh, evidence. Uh, the Spanish records are, are fascinating because they record everything in, in the um, speaker's own words. So we have incredible evidence of women in this scenario fighting witchcraft hearings and winning, you know, which is just so fantastic to see, um, defending, you know, bigamy charges and blasphemy charges. So, you you know, that's, that's sort of one part of it, that there was a surprising amount of evidence to me to show how much agency women in that situation were able to exert, even in situations where they're enslaved. The second part is a very specific piece of evidence, really, which is from a book called uh, Dangerous Speech, a, a Social History of Blasphemy in Colonial Mexico by Javier Villaflores. And he shows this very sort of specific dynamic that was going on by which enslaved people might use blasphemy as a way to sort of control their situation. And the reason for that is that in, you know, in, in uh, the Spanish New World, they take blasphemy very, very seriously. You know, they consider it to be a, a risk to your soul. It is very, very, very serious if people blaspheme. And so in that scenario, if you're heard publicly blaspheming, it gets referred to the Holy Office and the Holy Office, Holy Office takes charge of that scenario. So there is lots of evidence that enslaved people after, after sort of becoming aware of this are using blasphemy as a way to get transferred away from abusive masters, enslavers. If you blaspheme in public, in front of other people, you have to be removed. So that's fascinating to me because it suggests such cunning, clever approach to fighting back. And that really inspired me. And I wanted to, someone like Maria has very few options at her disposal. You know, she is completely isolated. She's on a ship with these really quite awful men. She's completely at the mercy of Drake. She has very few options to exert any power, but that's one she does have. And so that's what I wanted, you know, that that inspired me to kind of give her that option. And she uses some of the language that she uses at that point of the book is taken from these real records of real women using this sort of tool to try and influence their situation. And so you know, when there's lots of evidence of women saying, you know, at the point you get removed to the Holy Office, you know, then your situation is investigated. And at that point, you say, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm a woman of very little judgment. And in that scenario, lots of these women would be sort of let off, there'd be a penance, but, you know, nothing too terrible would happen to them at that point. And so the words that Maria uses in that scenario, when she's she's describing a sort of a previous scenario where she has learned about this strategy, and the words she uses are, are taken from, from real-life records of real-life women using that, that particular strategy. I know that we've had some comparisons between Maria and Shakespeare's character of Sycorax, who is also you know abandoned on an island and there's pregnancy involved. And I wonder if there's any direct parallels between this character and with Maria and whether or not there would have been documents published in England that Shakespeare might have had access to to know about Maria's story. I know you mentioned that a lot of the accounts weren't published for many years later. Some of them, in the case of Drake's nephew, that was well after Shakespeare's death. So could there be any connection between these two characters? Well, it is absolutely fascinating. You know, the, the line that sort of most closely summons sort of Maria's situation is the description of, of, of Sycorax in, in A Tempest when they say this blue-eyed hag was hither brought with child and here was left by the sailors. And that's exactly 
what happened to Maria. She was heavily pregnant. She was brought to an island and she was left there. So that's fascinating. But I suppose the reason that this has been picked up on is really that the parallels between uh, The Tempest and Drake's voyage are manifold. There are so many parallels that it makes it seem extremely likely that that Shakespeare was inspired by Drake's voyage. For example, um, Shakespeare was 16 when Drake returned from this voyage in 1580. And as I mentioned, you know, he returned home a huge celebrity. This was massive, you know. Everyone thought he was dead, by the way, before he returned, because the last they'd heard of him was a ship that had uh, been separated from the fleet in a shipwreck and they'd returned home. People thought he was dead. So he returns home, he's got unbelievable amounts of treasure, and he has been to the other side of the world. So he is a huge, huge, huge celebrity. You know, we have stories, there are records of him arriving at Middle Temple Hall, which is this very famous medieval hall in London, which Shakespeare also has connections to, and the whole place just sort of standing up and going crazy and sort of applauding him. So his return was huge. It seems very unlikely that, you know, someone like Shakespeare, this curious mind, this mind that is fascinated by foreign places and exotic lands, you know, we can see that all the way through all his plays. It seems virtually impossible to me that he wouldn't have been absolutely fascinated by that scenario. And the, the parallels between his you know, the Drake's voyage and the Tempest are of you know many so I've mentioned before that there was a point in the voyage where they were very close to being shipwrecked when the Golden Hind was stuck on a reef in the East Indies there were many instances of absolutely huge storms you know which is critical to what happens at the start of the, the the Tempest the sort of sorcery angle of the Tempest is also surprisingly straight out of Drake's voyage because this the, the, the aristocrat who was who'd lost his life on this voyage, there was a huge trial. Drake accused him of witchcraft. Drake Drake accused him of sorcery, of summoning bad winds. You know, lots of people on the boat believed this. You know, he was accused of many other things as well. But that sort of connection of the fact that a man was put to death for sorcery on Drake's voyage, you know, also sort of very sort of closely linked to the Tempest. And also this huge conflict that we have on the ship, on, on the Golden Hind, between the sailors and the gentlemen, you know, that is replicated in, in the Tempest as well. And to look sort of, you know, wider at, at all of Shakespeare's plays, you know, his exotic locations, his sort of interest in different places, his knowledge of, of nautical terms is incredible and has led many people to, to suppose that he actually spent time in the English Navy or on ships because his understanding of ship terminology is so sort of precise, you know, down to the sort of type of biscuit that sailors ate. So all of that suggests that Shakespeare was very interested in Drake and in this particular voyage. Now, we come to the question of whether this information was available when Shakespeare was writing The Tempest. He was writing it in 1610, 1611. The first performance was in 1611. And at that point, as you say, the information about Maria is very limited. The first mention of Maria in print came in 1615, which is you know four, year, four or five years later. But that reference to her kind of gives the game away that people knew about her a long time earlier than than it appeared in print because it appeared in a history book by William Camden and he had been given the job of 
uh, writing a history of Elizabeth I's reign. This book that first came out in 1615 in Latin, so later editions were in English, describes Maria. And he specifically, you know, he describes all of these elements that are in the Tempest, that she's left on an island, that he calls it inhumane, you know, which is uh, surprising to read, you know, that an Elizabethan man in this period, you know, can see that situation and sees that it's inhumane. You know, when he comes to the business of discussing Drake returning from his voyage, he says that Drake returned from this voyage, you know, with very little, with with no crime laid to his charge, he says, other than, and then he lists the execution of Thomas Doughty and the fact that uh, Maria was left on this island. And what that tells us is that this information was current from 1580 onwards. It was circulating. You know, these sailors who returned with Drake, 58 of them, are sworn to secrecy, but they've gossiped because this information is out there. And the only place that information could have come from was from those 58 sailors who returned. Drake wouldn't have mentioned it. Of course, you know, he's not going to bring that information to light. So it's come from somewhere. That's the only possible place it can have come from is from these sailors. So that is fascinating. It means that this information was current. And, you know, we have tantalisingly, we have no evidence of any connection between Shakespeare and Drake. They were in London at the same time. You know, it's thought likely that that Shakespeare would have arrived um, in London in the late 1580s, certainly by 1590. Drake is in London at that point. Drake is a massive celebrity. London is small in those days. It's very likely they're in the same place and the same time. You know, for example, I mentioned Middle Temple earlier. You know, we know Drake was at Middle Temple sometimes. The first uh, performance of Twelfth Night was at Middle Temple and Shakespeare would have been there. That's later on. But they're in the same place, slightly separated by a couple of years. And also, you know, at this time, the Golden Hind uh, was moored at Deptford, which is just a few, three, three, four miles down the river from Southwark, where we know Shakespeare spent a lot of time. And the Golden Hind, like Drake himself, the Golden Hind became a celebrity. It became kind of like a museum. People would go and visit. You know, it was fascinating. People, we have records of people going there to see it. We have records of Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's friend and and the playwright. We have records of him having dinner on board the Golden Hind. So we have so many of these sort of little, sort of almost close links that that makes it seem very likely to me that Shakespeare had this voyage in mind, if not that particular story of Maria when he wrote The Tempest. Um, and I, I, I suppose an added, an added piece of sort of this, this sort of very vague jigsaw is the Globe Theatre. You know, why is the Globe Theatre called the Globe? There are all sorts of reasons, but, you know, you cannot underestimate the relevance of Drake's journey at this point. It's huge. Uh, the fact that he's circumnavigated the globe, you know, Elizabethans have this huge sort of new sense of themselves as being adventurers, as going out into the world. I personally think that that kind of plays a part in the whole thing as well. So in short, we don't know, but it's fascinating. The links are fascinating. The possibilities are fascinating. Of course, we can recommend On Wilder Seas by Nikki Marmory, which was our July book club 
pick here for that Shakespeare life. And then Nikki has suggested Thunder Go North by Melissa Darby as a resource to check out in relation to Maria and her plight there. But Nikki, from your extensive research into this part of history while preparing for writing your book, what are some resources you can recommend for us as a reliable place to begin to explore both Maria's journey as well as the history about Sir Francis Drake and his voyage from the 16th century? Well, I would absolutely suggest a fantastic history called Black Tudors by Miranda Kaufman. It's a fascinating account of sort of many of the lives of Africans living in Tudor and Elizabethan England at the time. There's a sort of a chapter for each for each person. There's a chapter on Diego, who's a major character in my book. And within that chapter, she goes into the story of Maria. So that's a fantastic fantastic book that I think um, uh, people will find very interesting. One of the books that I used hugely in my research for this uh, book is called Afro-Latino Voices uh, by McKnight and Garofalo. This is a collection of uh, documents of the lives of um, Afro-Latino people living in Mexico, in Peru, all the way through the Spanish New World. And as I mentioned earlier, what's fascinating about them is that they are recorded in the speaker's own words. And that gives us huge amounts of information about their personality, about their hopes, their dreams, their frustrations, their motivations. So that is a fascinating Fascinating book that I also highly recommend. We talked about Blasphemy. The book that sort of goes into that in detail is called Dangerous Speech, a Social History of Blasphemy in Colonial Mexico. That's by Javier uh, Villa Flores. You know, you can read the account of Drake's voyage that was published by his nephew called The World Encompassed. You know, there are editions of that available as well, which are really fascinating. And one other that I would mention actually is an account of a, of a later voyage. It's it's actually a voyage that Drake's ne- Drake's cousin, nephew, not quite quite clear which, who was on board the Golden Hind with him, subsequently went on another voyage later on, which ended in absolute disaster. He was kidnapped by the Spanish and he never got home, spent the rest of his life in the Spanish New World. And that book is called An Elizabethan in 1582. And it is an account written by the chaplain of that voyage. And that's not the same chaplain as the chaplain on the Golden Hind, but I use that book for, for many, many of the details in my book as well, because his descriptions of life on board that ship are just fantastic. And his personality really comes across in that book. He, like many of the people on Drake, like in, in my book, you know, the chaplain in my book, who's kind of inspired by this other chaplain called Richard Maddox, he's stuck on a ship with this sort of captain who he thinks is an absolute idiot and also you know, it has very questionable morals and behaviour. And that's very similar to what happens to the chaplain on the Golden Hind in my book. He finds himself stuck with this really quite questionable captain whose word is law. He is judge, he is executioner. There is nothing you can do. What he says goes, and there is nothing you can do about it. So that book is also really fascinating and really surprisingly readable, given that it's it's written in Elizabethan English. And what was the name of the author of that book? That's by 
Richard Maddox, who is the who oh, is it the is but, okay. Yeah. Richard Maddox. We we will place links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. So be sure to stay tuned for the URL for where to find this list. And we aim to make it very easy and direct for you to navigate to the resources that we mentioned on our show, so that if you want to research further, you have reliable places to begin when you want to do that. Now, Nikki, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I think I'm going to kind of cheat like like, like the works of Shakespeare, and I'm going to go for the Wolf Hall trilogy, if we could treat those as one book. I'm still very much feeling the loss of Hilary Mantel, who is one of my favourite authors. Um, we lost her far too early and her genius for writing that period is just phenomenal. And I think the Wolf Hall books are just, A, they're huge. They will keep you occupied for a really long time. Um, but also they are just, they are works of absolute genius, in my opinion. So that would keep me very happy for a long time. Always good to choose a book that keeps you both happy and is long enough to last for your desert island stay. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, my next book is out in October, actually, and it's very different. It is more mythological than historical. It is about the myth of Lilith, who in some versions of the Hebrew myth was the first woman. So other before there was Adam and Eve, there was Adam and Lilith. And Lilith was ejected from paradise because she insisted on being equal to Adam. And so my book is about her story. It starts in the Garden of Eden. It starts in four, you know, I've taken that date of 4004 BC as the starting point. And it sort of carries her, she she's furious for obvious reasons. And it carries her through the next 6,000 years up to the present day. And we see through Lilith's eyes, the consequence of this moment, this sort of loss of equality for women, you know, this loss, that that's sort of the opening chapters of the Bible in which we have a, a male God who asserts that woman is inferior to man and that he shall rule over her. You know, this moment is going to have huge, huge consequences for women for the next you know, several thousand years. And that's what the book is about. So um, that's out in October in both um, the UK and the US. Well, we've enjoyed On Wilder Seas and look forward to your future projects. You can keep up with Nikki and her work in the show notes for today's episode. Thank you so much, Nikki Marmory, for being here this week to share with us about the history of Maria and the Golden Hind and pointing us towards some exciting history about potential connections with her story and with Shakespeare's plays. This is a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate you being here to share it with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you would like to see visuals and artifacts that go along with our conversation today, along with direct links to the resources we've mentioned in the show, explore all the extra history and research at CassidyCash.com slash episode 285. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 285. If you want to dive even deeper into the history you learn about here on the show, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Our collection of hands-on history activity kits let you try out a piece of Shakespeare history for yourself, including 16th century Tudor soap balls, the card game called Naughty that shows up in Shakespeare's play Two Gentlemen of Verona, and you can even learn how to make your own iron gall ink. 
Each kit comes with a video tutorial, a supply list, and step-by-step instructions to let you complete the activity at home or in your classroom. And it coordinates with both Shakespeare's plays and specific episodes of our show. If you like the idea of diving into the 17th century and getting to try out some of the history for yourself, then join us inside Experience Shakespeare, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Patrons of That Shakespeare Life get 40% off membership at Experience Shakespeare, along with insider access to the making of our show, including over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. Patrons get to suggest topic ideas for the show, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, and can even submit their own questions to be asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history with us each week and want to play a direct role in supporting the work we do here, you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.